to go. Do you need to even no, come? No, no, come, on, come, and join, come and join us. Ladies and gentlemen, um, as Murray Hipkin was saying before we were so rudely interrupted, um, uh, a little about... Uh, do you want to pick up where you are, or shall we move to another question? Um, no. Okay. I was going to ask you about, 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 about the balance between the pre-recorded elements in the, mm. uh, and, and the live musician. Just explain a little bit about how you manage that um, as the, as, uh, if, you're, if you're conducting the piece. Um, well, the interesting thing about conducting a piece is that a piece like this, in a place like this, is that, in fact, you have very little control um, over or, or very little knowledge of what it actually sounds like. So, so Andre, the conductor um, who I've been assisting, was was very much reliant on those of us who were out in the theatre. Now, this is quite normal in some ways in an acoustic setup, but I'm very, you know, I'm very used to running down to the front and saying the orchestra's too loud. But, of course, here we have Michelle, we have Frank, and we had um, Dave on the sound desk. So, in many ways, m that part of my job wasn't really quite there this time. But there are all these elements that do need to be balanced up, and not only for the audience, but, but the experience in the pit for the players as well, so that they can hear what they need to hear. And so that they have their, you know, quite a complex system of fallback in the pit, also on the stage. So, I'm, I'm not sure, but... Someone else will correct me, but I think there were at least three kind of systems going on there. So, so the musicians in the pit can hear on, on speakers around the pit exactly what there is they on... Need, yeah, so certain things are, are, are fed down there so they can hear enough of the soundtrack. So for, um, uh, for synchronisation, for example, the conductor has a click track in, in a headset. Now, it's not running all the time, but at places where there's moving film images that have to, or, or sung sections like the one you just heard a little bit of, that's done to a click track. So, in, in some ways, that's the easiest bit to synchronise. I've moved on now off balance to synchronisation. But, but what I was going to say is that the, 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 the orchestra very often need to hear the, the soundtrack uh, because there are rhythmic elements to that as well. Mm -hmm. And not always with the click track. So it's quite a complex one because you, 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 we really did have to work hard so that Andre, for example, the conductor, heard exactly what he needed to hear at all times. I, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm ignoring you, but it seems to me that what exists um, digitally is fixed in terms of time, but what is happening in the pit is fluid, it can change. Aha. Uh -huh. so <laughs> you may well think that. <laughs> um, I mean, if really, I mean, Michelle should be talking about this, but I can talk about it as someone who doesn't understand how it works, I just know what it does. Um, the, 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 sound, the soundtrack is sometimes um, on the film, and then that's the bit that always does come out at the same time. Um, there, there are sections where the, where the conductor becomes in charge again, where there isn't a click track going, where um, the, the um, chap who's operating the soundtrack um, follows the conductor. Now, Michelle and Frank have devised um, this software that does that, and you've called it a double-A player, haven't you? Which I wonder why that was. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, I don't have to do it, and I haven't been trained to do it, but, but, but I mean, perhaps Michelle should just tell us quickly how it works. But he, the guy doing that can follow by advancing or pausing, I imagine, the, so that he can synchronise with the conductor. So there are large sections of the piece where the conductor is in control. Although, of course, in rehearsal, he's also got Michelle saying, oh, sorry, that needs to be a bit faster. <laughs> do, you, do you want to add anything that well, it's, to explain? Well, it's, it's, it's a guy... Um, we have one extra musician in the orchestra pit who plays two computers. One computer is this software, we call it the AA player, and what the computer does is he, he feeds in every um, 
first count of each bar of the conductor, and the computer then calculates where the electronic sounds are mm. playing. So if the conductor makes a rubato, the sounds follow the rubato. Um, so it's a very elastic human mm. sort of way of using electronics, which we, we started doing maybe 10 years ago and sort of developed and developed that. Mm. So um, yeah, the, the, the electronics follow the tempo of the conductor. Um, and then the second laptop is he plays the video, the film clips, mm. and to a certain extent, these also um, follow the tempo of the conductor. Mm. Um, so some of the edits, the very sort of rough edits, are made with that program and sort of um, yeah, cut on the conductor as well. So he's actually cutting the film uh, in, a, in a very yeah, I mean in a very in large chunks, right. but yes, yeah. 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 Okay, Murray, I hope what might be a more simple question, I mean, uh, Claren has already wonderfully described her voice as being like Safina Wren, um, <laughs> which I, uh, is the image I'm going to treasure forever. <laughs> but but what, what, what for the other singers, I mean, are, 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 are the difficult things about this? Well, one, one of the things that, in fact, going back to your first question, what struck me when I really actually started to, to study the, the music and to approach it as somebody who's going to have to work with the singers and, and uh, possibly even try and play it on the piano, was that um, the way that the whole thing was notated in crotchet beats all the way through, and there's nothing else. And this is to facilitate this click track synchronization. So that, then I thought, oh, crumbs, well, then all these, all the vocal lines, all these words are all in the wrong beats. It doesn't work out. And of course, when you hear, and you've heard a little bit already, although that was, probably wasn't the best example of it, but, but there's a lot of extremely complex rhythmic work for the singers, which is, which is demanding, and it does because it doesn't fall on the beats. What what uh, Michelle has achieved is a, is a very natural rhythm for the text, but it doesn't kind of fit quite where you might think. And of course, you're not looking at the score, so you don't. And if you're not looking at the conductor, you won't know which beat it is anyway. So it doesn't matter. So what you hear is very natural um, speech rhythms a lot of the time, but actually making that fit into the one, two, three, four has required, has it not, quite a lot of <laughs> this kind of thing um, from the singers. And um, I, I don't know about Clarence's um, process, but um, I've been working with the understudies, and I encourage them to learn it absolutely robotically, exactly rhythmically, without even starting to think about what the meaning was. And then when that had gone in, to then start to think about where the stresses and the, and the releases were in the text. And, and I'm, I'm sure you'll agree that the three um, singers this evening, or five if you count the other two on the film, have done a fantastic job in, 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 in achieving that, and I've probably spoiled the whole thing for you now <laughs> by telling you how hard it is. Murray, thank you very much. Pleasure. Ladies and gentlemen, our last guest tonight is Franck von de Bey, who is the technical producer for this show. Would you please welcome Franck von de Bey? Thank you for, for pronouncing my name in almost <laughs> fluent Dutch. <laughs> a long way, the least I could do. Uh, from, what was um, uh, your first reaction? I asked this to Murray. When, when you first were involved with the project, when it was explained to you, when you began to think about it, what did you think of it as a project? Well, um, it was interesting when, when you first asked this question, like what, what happened to you when you saw the score? Well, when I saw the score, I was already panicking in all layers of the production because we were in, uh, in the high-speed uh, last phase of preparing this. But yeah, it's, um, it started quite a long time ago. I think it's, it, uh, it was the end of 2009 that Michel had some fascination about 
3D. We had a, a sort of a third revival of 3D movies. And um, I found myself in the beginning of 2010 uh, doing meetings with all these people who know exactly uh, how 3D technology works. But then I had to ask them questions about, yes, but we want to do this with three or four singers on stage right in front of it. And everyone was going, okay, good luck. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and then Michel was very busy with other pieces composing. And um, from that moment on, my job is to sort out if at all this can be made realistic. And also uh, for a project like this, it all depends on what you can spend at some extent because you know it's great about a performance to think about uh, well composed music and two people on the stage with two chairs you know that you you will always be able to 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 produce that but with um, a complex se setting where you use several kinds of film in including 3d it's very much dependent on how big is the project going to be. So it's a lot of calculation in advance also. And then uh, at a very late stage when everything comes together and also the, the production, the co-production side of the story comes to sort of a, yeah, a basic end, then you can see again what you can do, how much time you have to film, how you puzzle it all together. And of course, uh, because the, the financial pressure is so high for a production like this, and especially for opera houses where they are used to start a rehearsal period, the set is just being finished. Uh, it goes on stage and people are involved and then starts the real spending. And we have to do that sort of in advance. So a half a year or even early in advance, you have to start spending money on filming on tests uh, there's a lot of people and equipment involved maybe well, it's a very boring story but it's this this well, is the basic the, but in that process were the things you found that simply couldn't be done were the things that michelle wanted that simply couldn't be done well the great thing about michelle is that he understands all of this technology so uh, it he he merges possibilities with his ideas so of course, you, you, you run into small issues, and of course, you uh, come to questions of how this is ever going to work. Michelle was already uh, telling you about uh, the model test that we did with Claren on a piece of carton <laughs> and <laughs> all the other singers as well. Where we played with that with a, with a very expensive camera rig uh, on uh, one side of the room where the set was built in miniature and a copy of that on the other side of the room where we had like a 3D TV screen where you saw that back. So we were endlessly balancing uh, in preparation of both the set building as the film shoot. And yeah, of course, then you, you end up uh, seeing that some things don't work, but uh, yeah. Um, you try to turn that into a positive effect. I, I wondered whether, whether it becomes even more difficult, not in a big way, but in, in just simply a logistical way, in that Roderick Williams is required to work as a stagehand 
as well as take the principal lead in the first part. I mean, you know, this only adds further complications to the whole process as he has to move the set, pull curtains down and various things. Yes, well, um, money was, uh, we finished on the money, so we had to um, ask him to leave. <laughs> <laughs> There's an honest answer. <laughs> right, I'm not no, but um, just a few months before, we were restaging Afterlife in Melbourne, uh, where Roddy was also involved. And we did a sort of a new version where we used pallets with pallet jacks. And he was, you know, while he was singing his role from the first rehearsal on, he was sort of pumping up the pallets and driving them around on the stage. So he's, he's a fearless man. So even if you would invite him to, 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 to drive on the stage with a motorcycle and then say, can you take it apart and put it back in again while singing, then he will say, oh, I have to get my hand around it, but I'll get that. <laughs> of course, there's a dramaturgical um, reason for it. Um, the, the, the set is built by this wonderful young Dutch designer, uh, Terren Mosk, who also did the lighting design. Um, and we, we, what he made is this sort of cube-like um, structure. You can see it a little bit on this picture. Yeah. It's, it's about seven by seven meters. And we see this as almost as the head of Toby Kramer, the head of the filmmaker. And we gradually go in and we open up the head and get deeper and deeper into his his, his uh, uh, fantasies and um, so dramaturgically I, I thought it was really beautiful if he could do all that all that moving so he's taking into his own imagination in a way yeah in a way yeah in, in the course of it um, say a little bit I mean who 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 made the, you presumably as your own producer director made the major decisions about the design you chose the design team uh, yes, but I mean, the, the turn mosque really designed uh, the stage and the yeah. lighting. And, and, um, um but did, did you have a firm idea of what you wanted? You've talked about the concept that he, that he has of this cube that represents in which Toby's... No, no, that's his idea. No, right. I, I said, okay, we, 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 this, is, this is the film script. Uh, this is what, what I wanted to do with the film. So at one point we need sort of a big backdrop in 3D film. And you'll see how that ends up on the stage. Um, he, he, that's a very clever uh, solution he came up with. Um, and he, yeah, I, I knew I wanted to start the opera in 2D film because I wanted to follow the documentary of Toby Kramer and, and sort of extend his screening possibilities as soon, uh, you know, gradually as he gets more money from Zena. So we start quite sort of low budget, small, end up bigger and bigger until we go to 3D. Um, so these, these, these were the sort of um, wishes and dreams I had and then he translated that into into this wonderful design. Can I, from, before we ask the audience to join us, um, looking now um, into what is, is, is to be the second public performance of this, does this piece now look what you thought it was going to look like when you first became involved? I mean, has it become a piece that you recognise from your first exposure to it? Uh, well, uh, because Michelle and I worked together for quite a while, of course I have a sense of which way he's going and how he's going to add up his challenges. But, um, and uh, then uh, when Turn started to design the set, uh, we were also modeling it. So I've been looking at these images endlessly and, uh, but you know, it's always a surprise when it comes together in the end. It's always different from what you imagine and on the other hand, you're so connected to all of the information you've gathered in advance. Well, I mean, there was one exciting moment when we, we had this big backdrop in the yeah. rehearsal space and, and put on this footage we shot in the Sunken Garden. We had someone from McGovern 
and uh, Cadmir Hyde standing there as holograms. And we asked, uh, I don't know if it was you or Roddy, to walk in front of it. And then suddenly we said, wow, they are in the same space now. Mm. And they can actually, they interact. And this is really working. This is such an important moment for me. Uh, it could have been uh, a disaster, you know, if that wouldn't have worked. Then my whole concept wouldn't have worked. So mm -hmm. that was a very exciting moment. Mm -hmm. Let's ask the audience, ladies and gentlemen, there is a, a roving microphone. If you'd like to put your hand up, if you'd like to ask any of our four guests a question, um, please catch my eye and we'll get the microphone to you. Who would like to begin? We're going to have that wonderful English member if you all look at our neighbours. <laughs> they will ask the first question. Don't be abashed. We can always turn away from you. Who would like to begin? Yes, a question over here. Uh, Michelle, I just wanted to ask you, uh, when you are designing the opera and laying out the timeline, how did you manage to control the emotional intensity of what you are creating? Um, well, one, one thing I, I, of course, had uh, quite early on had to decide upon is how much time each chunk of text would use. So I already made quite a big bit of decisions on which parts of the text I wanted sort of aria-like and, and, and use more time so I can really get into the character slightly deeper and, and more three-dimensional, if you like. And some parts of the text are merely there to get the story uh, across and are much more parlando and much more, um, you know, facts almost. So I made that distinction quite early on. So there are moments where there, where there are sort of almost proper traditional areas uh, of five, six minutes. And there are moments where, where quite a bit of text goes through to get the story going. Um, and, and while writing these areas, which in a way are sort of the more intimate and more um, um, emotional, I mean, these, these sort of deepen the characters on stage, I, I, I hopefully made sure that there's enough time for them to develop that. And, and we worked a lot on that on, in, in the staging period as well, and determining the, the line that each of the characters is going to make through the opera. And we talked about that quite a lot, also with David Mitchell, who came in and gave us a lot of backstory about all these characters. Um, of course, he, uh, he almost, he, he even made biographies for each one of them, so we, we read the biographies, um, and that helped us understand uh, who, who they are. And, and, and a lot of that information is not there, it's not sung, but it's there in, in their, you know, in their staging and in their sort of development. Another question. Another question? Yeah, the microphone will come round. I mean, we're obviously in a very privileged position in relation to an entirely new production with all the members who've actually created it um, here. I'm just thinking a little bit ahead. I mean, with productions of traditionally, there's a score, and over a period of 100, 200, 300 years, it can be revived and reinterpreted and so on. Um, how do you see the, if I can ask, having not even seen it yet, what do you think the, after, the afterlife, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> uh, the subsequent history of, of, this, uh, of this production will be, in, just in terms of what survives and can be reused? Well, well there's, there's, a, there's, of course, a score and there's a film script. So in, in a way, these are the two essential narrative elements of the, of the piece. So I, I think, and I would be very interested, actually, in seeing someone you know, using these two um, uh, things and, and make their own production out of it. I think that's very much possible and maybe even better than what I've done. I mean, I w definitely would be interested to see that. 
But it raises an interesting question, because we think about, um, clearly, a musical score having this kind of multiple life, but we don't think about film scripts having multiple lives, really, do we? No, but, but they, they do. I mean, they, they look at Hollywood. They remake yeah. films all the time. It's, yeah. it's, it's, it's there. And the film script is, it's in a way, <coughs> it's slightly less specific than the film score, but that also leaves room for a new director to do his or her, her own thing with it. And I think that would be very interesting to bundle the film script with the score, and that's, you know, and I hope I'll, I'll see this during my lifetime even. You know, I would be very, really very interested to see how, what the outcome would be. Another question. Yes. Uh, you mentioned the collaboration with the librettist. Um, you met 10 times, you said. Uh, after those 10 times, did you feel like the text was, I mean, after the text was delivered, that that was the final version, or while you were writing the music, you kind of needed some tweaks or... Oh, yeah. Because oh, yeah. uh, you mentioned, for example, the tailoring to the voices uh, of the singers. I wonder whether... We did a lot of tweaking. Even during the rehearsal period, we were still changing texts, and, uh, and Murray was so kind to uh, keep track of that. And, um, uh, and David Mitchell was very, very open about that. And he said, just you know, do what, you, what needs to be done. And uh, uh, so we corrected, or corrected, <laughs> Um, changed, uh, <laughs> updated. <laughs> updated some of the words, and uh, you know, um, I, I, I sort of uh, because English is not my native tongue. I think I uh, mis uh, mis um, composed um, what were the words again? Um, uh, no, no, the uh, youth and euthanasia. No, there was another. Yeah, but there were a few, a few very. Uh, Yes, that's it. Anesthetician. Oh, nice. I, I had no idea how to um, pronounce that word. So that was very clear in the score as well. So we had to sort of, you know, solve these kind of things. Um, um, other than that, uh, also after these 10 meetings, we, we emailed, you know, I would say 100, 100 of times uh, to, to tweak stuff. And, uh, and he came to see my the film, first film edit. And even from, from his response there, I, I sort of re-edited some of the film. And so he was very involved with during the whole process. We've time for one more question. Who would like to ask the last question? Yes, microphone on its way. So um, with traditional operas, there's um, obviously this idea that you um, have to interpret it. Um, what are the pros and cons of having someone who's actually alive directing um, you in? And that's for all kind of um, aspects of the creative team, really. Karen, that's for you, I suspect. Like yeah. Um, can you hear me? Um, it's again, it's very interesting to to have the person who actually composed the music also be the person who's directing the music for it. And you have sort of conductors, directors who just say, "This is my concept. This is the jacket I want you to wear. Make sure it fits." And what's really been interesting and, and quite nice working with Michel uh, is that he looks at <laughs> and what we are actually bring into it. So there's been lots of discussions, uh, psychological discussions, practical discussions. Uh, so you feel that you have more responsibility for, for the final the final result, actually the end product, which is, is quite exciting. I think I take my cue from our guests in the front row. I think we've been astonishingly privileged this evening to have had 
these four extraordinary people who have collaborated on creating a brand new work. And <coughs> all of us are going to see it tonight. So my say thank you to all of you for being here. But thank you most particularly to Michelle van der Aar, to Taryn McFadden, Murray Hipkin, and Frank van der Bey. All of you, thank you very much for being with us. <laughs>